Kids, I hope you have a wonderful time in the back. I saw what you're going to be doing today, and it looks like great fun. Have a good time. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to be reading a few verses at the end of Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in chapter um, 32. Um, but while you're turning there, I was um, reminded of uh, St. Augustine uh, this morning. I've, used, I've told you this story before. Um, but St. Augustine was probably likely one of the greatest Christian minds uh, ever to have lived. Um, he uh, was a prolific writer, uh, a tremendous theologian, probably shaped church history more than really any other figure. And he was known for describing God as the hound of heaven. Uh, and what he meant by that is that God, when he chooses us, pursues after us and he chases after us relentlessly. But I'm pretty sure that the, the hound of heaven for Augustine took the form of his mother, who was a woman named Monica. Uh, she was in every way an ancient version of a helicopter mom. And you know the type that's out there. Um, she wanted desperately for her son to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And she prayed for him year after year, decades after decades. She would always uh, drop little subtle hints about the faith and some not so uh, subtle hints about the faith as well. And nobody was more excited that one day her prayers were answered and Augustine came to faith in Jesus. And so when you think about St. Augustine, think about um, the mother that stands behind him, a woman named Monica, and be reminded of the incredible importance that mothers play in the life of their children. So happy Mother's Day uh, to you mothers who are out there. Our reading is from Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading from verses 32 to 37. This is uh, God's word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Father, thanks for uh, just the opportunity to worship this morning, Lord. And I'm just reminded of, of so much of the truth of the gospel that we've already sung and recited together and rehearsed through confessions of sin and assurances of grace, these, these parts of the liturgy of what we call the church, Lord, and what beautiful, gentle, powerful reminders they are of the truth of God. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, that you would speak to us, that you would open our ears, enlighten our minds, enliven our hearts uh, to hear your truth this morning, Father, because we desperately need to hear your voice. So speak to us through the power of the Spirit. And in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Years ago, I, I read a book uh, by a man, a historian named uh, Robert Wilkin, and the title of the book was uh, How the Romans Viewed the Christians. 
And what it talks about is how the Roman world or really the world around these first Christians perceived Christianity in its early days. And what surprised me is is most people didn't take notice at all. Most people didn't even notice Christianity. It was just a a blip on the radar scene of the ancient world uh, for about 100 years. And then what you find after that sort of 100-year mark, Christianity began to explode into the Roman world. And it exploded because God's people, those first Christians, were passionate to preach the message of the gospel. And that gospel message had incredible power to change lives and to change the world. And so Christianity established itself, not just as another association or just some social group, but as a movement that wound up changing the world and still changes the world. It's a movement centered on the message and the person of Jesus Christ. And what we've been doing uh, this spring is looking at the book of Acts and the first step Jesus' followers took after he ascended back into heaven. That's where the book of Acts starts. Jesus ascends back into heaven, but not before he gives his followers uh, a very significant mission. You read about it. Uh, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and that mission was essentially to take the message of the gospel out into the world and to change the world for for Jesus Christ it was a daunting mission and so that's why God promised that he would send his spirit to empower these scared followers of Jesus Christ and as you get to Acts chapter 2 God makes good on his promises he sends the power of the Holy Spirit Peter runs out into the streets, he preaches the message of the gospel, and 3,000 people are converted to Christianity in just that one moment. Maybe the most powerful sermon ever preached, I don't know, but I would think it would be in contention. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John uh, begin to to heal people. They they show the same miraculous power that Jesus had. Peter preaches another sermon after this healing. Many people are converted to the faith. But then it tells us in Acts chapter 4, at the beginning of our chapter, uh, the disciples begin to get arrested. Um, They start to face persecution just as Jesus did. They're brought before the same uh, officials that Jesus was brought before, uh, just before the crucifixion. They are imprisoned. Then they miraculously escape and, uh, again, preach the gospel to anyone who would listen. And so this is the, the first of these external oppositions that the followers of Jesus were beginning to feel. And it was just the beginning of great persecution and great opposition that this Jesus movement would begin to feel. But before we get to sort of all those persecutions, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, He wants to shine a light on something for us. He wants to help us to see, open up a window, whatever it is, a little bit about the interior life of this movement of Jesus, right? We get to see what happens in public, but sort of what's going on behind closed doors uh, with this interior life of these first Christians? And he shares something uh, really beautiful with us about these first Christians, and then something that's, that's hard, Uh, something that uh, was a hardship that these first Christians had to deal with. And that's what we want to look at this morning. But Luke starts by showing us uh, the beautiful community of the church. He says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
Think about that. One heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were of his own, but they had everything in common. When Luke writes this, I think he wants us to think back to a chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15, where God is talking to his people and he essentially says to them that, that he doesn't want there to be anyone who is needy among God's people, among this community of faith. And so he says this to the Israelites, but sadly, if you've read the Old Testament, that dream was never realized. In fact, the prophets would often come along and say, remember, God said there shouldn't be any needy among you, and yet look at the, the oppression that happens in your midst. There still is poverty. There still is the needy that is among you. So that dream was, was never realized. And we live with that in our world today now, don't we? We, we uh, come up with strategies to alleviate the needs that are around us to deal with instances of social injustice and oppression. And yet still these problems persist. There still are the needy among us. Poverty is still rampant in our world. But Luke tells us in verse 34 that at least in this community, there was not a needy person among them. Not a needy person among them. And what we're getting to see here is that in this little slice of Jesus's followers, in this little slice of the ancient world and in the ancient culture, those original dreams outlined in Deuteronomy 15 were being realized. Luke tells us there was beautiful love and there was beautiful unity amongst God's people that they didn't consider their own gifts and their own resources. They didn't consider them as their own, but they considered them as to be belonging of the entire community of faith. They were under no compulsion to sell their property, to sell their goods, and to donate them to the needy, but they did it. They did it out of joy. They did it willingly for one another. They were so passionate about the message of the gospel, it tells us in verse 33, that they couldn't help but, but share it with those around them. They didn't have any evangelism classes. They didn't have any a training in how to convince people about the faith in Jesus Christ. They were simply so passionate about it that they couldn't help but share it with others. No guilt, no motivation, no sense of duty. It was a tremendous joy for them to give of themselves and to share the message of the gospel. They couldn't help but do it. And in verse 33, it says, and great grace was upon them. Great grace was upon them. Now, commentators have looked at this verse in 33 about grace. They've wondered, what, it, what exactly does Luke mean by this? Uh, what's the meaning of this phrase? Is it saying that God poured a special measure of grace upon them to make this church grow the way that it did? Or is he saying that they themselves exhibited wonderful graciousness to one another, a radical generosity? I think the answer is probably both. Both were going on here. They were so overwhelmed by the grace that had been given them in Christ through his death and resurrection, through the gifts of the Spirit, that they could not help but exhibit grace towards one another was translated into a radical unity amongst them and a radical sense of generosity. 
Uh, the Celtic Christians used to talk about this idea of thin places. Maybe you've heard this before. In fact, there was a, um, there was a New York Times article probably 10 years ago um, by, an, uh, by an author who was looking at Celtic Christianity. And he said that they, the Celtic Christians believed that, that there were thin places between the veil of heaven and earth where it felt like heaven sort of snuck through in these thin places. And I have to believe that that's exactly what Luke is describing here about these first century believers. They were exhibiting amongst themselves a small taste of what heaven is really all about. Maybe you want to call it an appetizer of the great feast that we're going to get in heaven. This kingdom of justice and peace, of unity and love. A kingdom where everyone is of one heart and one soul. And that's what these first believers were experiencing. But here's what the truth is, friends. The truth is the church ought to be that, not just then, but also today as well. The church community ought to be a foretaste of what the world and beauty of heaven will look like. And the outside world should see in this community of faith what heaven ought to look like. Yes, dim, yes, imperfect, yes, stumbling, but at least a taste of what the picture of heaven should look like. Acts tells us in chapter 2 that people were being drawn to Jesus. Why? Because they looked at those followers of Jesus and the community of faith and they saw something powerful and something different amongst them. And they wanted to be a part of it. And that's what drew them in to the community of faith. Friends, this is what the gospel does. It isn't just something we believe with our heads and mentally assent to. It radically changes us on the inside. It radically changes our conduct, the way we relate to one another. And the church gets to become that community centered on the power of the gospel. They received great grace and they exhibited great grace. And that's what God calls us to as well. But Luke isn't just content to tell us about it. He says this is the way the church was But he also wants to offer us two case studies about it, two really contrasting case studies about the church. The first one he tells us about in our passage in verses 36 to 37, he talks about a man named Barnabas and his name was actually called Joseph. He was one of the apostles. His name meant son of encouragement. And it tells us in verse 37 that he sold a field that belonged to him. He brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So Luke tells us about Barnabas. He's one of these first believers. He experienced and exhibited the great grace of God. He exemplified the character of his name, son of encouragement. And it tells us that he was one of these folks that that sold a field and gave the money to the apostles for the benefit of the community. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, you discover Barnabas becomes a pretty big deal. As this church grows, he becomes a leader in the church. He befriends Paul when nobody else would after Paul converted to the faith of Christianity, becomes Paul's traveling companion, and he spreads the gospel all throughout the ancient world. And so Luke offers us this case study of Barnabas, of what this looked like in one particular man. But he also shows us a contrasting case study if you keep reading. And if you keep reading in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, 
you're introduced to uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And if you, we didn't read it in our passage this morning, but you can go out and read it on your own. But Ananias and Sapphira, they decided to sell a piece of property as well, something that wasn't required, but one thing that they wanted to do. But what they decided to do was deceptively keep back a portion of the proceeds. And so they sold a portion of the field, they brought the money to the church, but they kept a portion of it in their back pocket and didn't tell anybody about it. You see, they wanted the respect of the community of faith. Um, They wanted to be thought of as being super spiritual, just like everyone else. But they kept back some of the portion of it, and they lied to the church community as a result of it. Peter somehow knows about this. He somehow knows about the deception, and so he confronts Ananias about it in verse 4 of chapter 5. He says to Ananias, you've lied not to men, but to God. And in verse 5, it says these words. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Okay. Uh, A few minutes later, uh, the young men come in. They remove the body of Ananias. A few minutes later, actually a couple hours later, uh, Sapphira comes in, his wife. She doesn't know what just happened to her husband. She repeats the same error. She lies to the apostles as well. And it says she breathed her last in that moment. Luke twice says there that great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, I don't know if you ever heard this passage in church before. Preachers like to skip over passages like this uh, from time to time and not really talk about it, um, though these stories are throughout the Bible if you read them. And whenever you come to passages like this, uh, you you sort of have to approach them with a, a recognition that we don't have all the answers here. And you've got to come with a certain measure of humility when you read passages like this. There are things that we know, things that are revealed, and then there's sort of things that we don't know. Um, things that are a part of the secret plan of God. And so let's start with what we don't know about this passage, some of those secret things. We don't know why God would choose to do this. We don't know why God didn't give them an opportunity to repent and to confess their error like he does in so many other places, but he doesn't in this instance. We don't know why God used this instance to strike fear in the hearts of believers. Why would God want to make them afraid in this moment and be fearful that something like this could happen to them? And so we're left with some mystery here. We're left with some questions. We're left with sort of the inability to figure it all out. And that's okay, right? We can't figure out everything about the mysteries of God and about the scriptures as well. It leaves us reminded of sort of C.S. Lewis's uh, famous illustration in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, where, it, where one of the, the persons asked, is God safe? And the answer is, of course God isn't safe, but he is good. And this passage reminds us of that very thing. But there are some things that we do know that might help us make a little bit of sense with this story of Ananias and Sapphira. We do know that this time period in the book of Acts was a pretty unique time in the history of God's spirit and in the history of God's faith. You know, we look at this book of Acts and we see what happens here 
And some things are normative, meaning they apply to us today, but some things are unique in what we read here as well. Things that are unique is that God is pouring out his spirit in a particularly miraculous way in the book of Acts. We see him empowering his people to speak different languages and to perform miracles. He's doing unique things in this moment to build his church. And so while there are some things in the book of Acts that are true of the church today, there's also some really unique things that are happening here that may not necessarily be normative for the way we think about the church today. But what I do think is happening here that's important is I think God in a very powerful way is protecting the intimacy of this first community of faith. And what I mean by that is this. If you've been a parent and you've gone through life as a parent, um, you know that there are certain things that you do for your kids when they are at a very young and tender age, right? You tie their shoes for them, you strap them into car seats, um, you protect them from the harsh realities of the world that is around them, and you protect them because why? They're at a very tender, a very young and intimate age, but at some point, you, they grow up and, and you can't always protect them from anything anymore and your relationship with them changes. And I think to some degree that's what God is doing for this young and intimate community. They've already faced some hardship without, from without. They're already dealing with persecution and being arrested and being threatened short of their lives and that's only gonna get worse. They're only gonna face stronger persecution people are going to start losing their lives and being martyred for their faith. That's only going to get worse. But at least with Ananias and Sapphira, they're dealing with a very internal problem and they're very young. They're very very tender. And so what God wants to do is he wants to preserve the integrity of this community. He doesn't want anything to disturb the beautiful thing that is happening in their midst. And of course, that's true at this moment, but It's not going to be normative as they continue to grow. And so all that to simply say this, God's ways are not always our ways, right? God's ways are not always our ways. And I am often very thankful of that fact. His ways are not our ways. Anne Lamont famously said that you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You ever thought about that before? If God is always on your side, he always hates the same people that you hate, that probably means you've made God into your own image. And that's what the Bible forbids. We can't make God into our own image. We can't pick and choose what we like about God and what we don't. We can't pick and choose to believe certain things about God and disregard others. We can't ignore some stories in the Bible and accept only others. To do so is to make God into our own image. It's to create our own God. This God is so powerful and bigger than us and beyond us that he resists being molded into who we want him to be. We have to accept him for who he is. We have to to take him for who he is. And that means that often we have a lot of questions. And often there's many instances of things that we don't know and we're left with scratching our head. But here's what we do know, friends. We do know about the gospel. We do know 
that God did not spare his own son, but put his judgment upon him. Acts 8 tells us he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, though we're left with lots of questions with this story, I think we can be confident that they wanted to be thought of as righteous, but they didn't want to have to pay the cost for it. They had it all backwards. They took the matter of becoming righteous into their own hands, and they thought that if they could just be perceived as righteous and good, then they would receive grace from God and grace from the community of faith. But that's where they were mistaken. Because the only way to truly be righteous, the only way to truly be good, the only way to be truly accepted by God is to be, to be declared righteous and good by the grace of God. You see, we all want to be thought of as good. We all want to be accepted into God's family, but instead, we're, we're just like Ananias and Sapphira. We deserve the same judgment that they received that very day, but the gospel tells us that the judgment we deserve instead was put on Jesus Christ, God's own son. At the cross, the final judgment of God was poured into the death of his very own son. See, friends, we can't become righteous or good on our own. The cost was too great for us, and so Christ suffered on the cross on our behalf so that you and I could be made right before God. He paid the cost so that you and I, even though we are sinful, even though we are unrighteous and deserving of judgment, just as Ananias and Sapphira were, he paid the cost so that you and I could be declared righteous before God. See, the path of the gospel isn't about earning our way to God. It isn't about somehow finding or manipulating our own goodness or our deeds. It isn't about oppressing others, whether that's real or contrived. The faith is all about finding our righteousness in Jesus because he paid the cost. He suffered the judgment so that you and I can experience great grace. And in the gospel, we experience that great grace of God. And as a response, we get to exhibit that great grace in our world. So friend, if you've experienced the grace of God in your life, then it's your call, it's your privilege, it's your joy to exhibit that great grace with one another to be contributing to this beautiful community of faith that is a taste of heaven, not just that we get to experience, but that the world that is watching gets to see as well. Be that community of faith to one another because of the joy that you've been given and the great grace you've been given in Jesus. Let's pray.